One year ago, on March 4th, 2018, we started a series in Romans. And here we are at the end of chapter 11. So, just like the deacons thing, we just, we love slow. We got one speed. Well, actually, there's two. They're slow and slower. But um, this, is a, this is an important um, Sunday and passage of Scripture because Romans 11 um, and 12 is the big pivot point. It's the big tilt point in the letter. And so we come to the end of Romans 11 today. Next week, Kenneth will be preaching from Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And there's a, there's a therefore at the beginning of Romans 12, 1, because it begins really the second half or the second portion of the book. And so we're going to move from this wonderful survey of, of humanity and their plight of guilt before God and then the rescue that comes through Jesus Christ and, and how the Holy Spirit then works and, and sort of the theology of, of justification and, and sanctification and God's heart for the nations and the nation of Israel in particular. And, and then at chapter 12, it pivots and tilts and it becomes much more sort of practical and street level. And so, so we're at a really important moment here uh, this morning. And so Carla Moran is going to read the uh, last portion of Romans 11, verses 17 through 36 for us. So thanks, Carla, for reading. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but feared. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has power to graft them in again. For you were cut from by what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has co-signed all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the debts and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that it may be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen.
Thank you, Carla. Let's pray. Oh God, in the busyness of our city, the busyness of our lives, and the busyness of our minds, we pause now. We quiet our hearts before you. You are present with us, present to bless. And we acknowledge our need for you, our desire for you, and our confidence in you. And I pray, Father, through this sermon, I pray that Jesus Christ would increase and that our focus on ourselves would decrease. I pray that through this sermon, we could make much of the kingdom of God and make less of the kingdom of this world. I pray that you would draw near to us and meet us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. What does that mean? You might be thinking, well, Mark's sermons, those are incomprehensible. <laughs> I'm not talking about that kind of incomprehensibility. What does it mean to be incomprehensible? Something that's incomprehensible means something that's without limits, right? It's something that's boundless. It's something that's infinite. If you can put a fence around something, then it's not incomprehensible. Something that's incomprehensible is something that's so vast, so large, that it's unfathomable to our minds. God is incomprehensible. God is incomprehensible. God is boundless. God is infinite. God is always greater than you can imagine. Who's the wisest person who's ever lived? God is infinitely wiser. What's the most beautiful sight you've ever seen? God is infinitely more beautiful. Stretch your brain to conceive of God in the grandest, greatest way you can. Then push a little farther and then hear the advice of Puritan author Stephen Charnock who says, this is not God. God is more than this. See, we can know some things about God, but not everything about God. We can know God truly through Jesus Christ, but we can never know God fully in the sense that we can never circumscribe who he is in our brains. And human beings have a relentless tendency to shrink God into manageable terms, to put fences around God so that we can get what we want from him when we want him to provide it. But God is incomprehensible, and we do well to be reminded of the immensity of God. We are well served from time to time to be left sort of scratching our heads and trying to put it all together together. And, and when we get to that place, 
Well, in that place, we simply want to kneel down and worship. Romans 9, 10, and 11 brings us face to face with this incomprehensible God. Nothing is too hard for him. He needs no advisors. Not everything he does is equally understandable to us. But when we come to that place where we don't understand what God is up to, what do we do? Are we like that little child who keeps asking the parent, why, 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 and won't obey until they are fully satisfied? That's not maturity. In that moment, when we bump into this infinite God who is beyond our understanding, whose ways are higher than our ways. No, maturity and humility is to, in that place, acknowledge his greatness and our limitations and kneel down in worship. This passage has a very simple message. There's a lot going on. It's Lots of things happening in this passage, but there's a very simple message underneath it all. And that's this. In light of God's saving plan, let's worship. In light of God's saving plan, let's worship. We'll see in this passage that before it's all over, before history comes to an end, God will see to it that a great many people, Jews and Gentiles, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will find a place in God's family through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And in light of this great plan, well, let's respond worshiping the incomprehensible God. So this morning we'll see as we move through the second half of Romans 11, we'll see a picture of a tree, we'll see a future for Israel, And then we'll see a hymn of praise. And we're going to end by entering into a time of singing at the end of the message. So let's look at God's tree first. Verses 17 to 24 bring into view God's tree. We actually got a hint of this. uh, The last verse from last week, uh, verse 16, mentions that if the root is holy, so are the branches. And it brings into view this this picture of this tree. Now, before I go into the tree, I just want to ask you a question. When you see a group picture and you're in the picture... What's the first thing to do? Well, if you're like me, the first thing to do is you look at yourself, right? I mean, I've got to look at myself and I've got to say, how bad was it this time? <laughs> I've never been accused of being photogenic and it's always just some degree of bad to worse, right? So I've got to check that out and see how bad was it? My eyes closed, was I yawning? What's going on here? So these, these verses are a group picture, And Paul, writing to this church in Rome, is asking them, each one, can you locate yourself in this picture? Where do you find yourself on this tree? Right, so the picture is of a tree. It's of an olive tree. This is a tree with branches and roots. Now, listen to verses 17 and 18, and and, and I want you just to to picture this tree. Maybe we can get the uh, the tree up on the screen so you can have a picture of a tree in in your mind. Um, So, Verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So here we've got this olive tree. Now, an olive tree, olive trees are common in the Middle East, in this part of the world, 
But olive trees were also symbols for the nation of Israel. Jeremiah eleven sixteen. the Lord once called you a green olive tree. It was a common understanding for, uh, metaphor for Israel. So it says in our passage that some of the branches of this tree have been broken off. So picture, you know, maybe you've seen a tree, you've had a tree with some broken branches or some dead branches. And, and so you come along and you, you prune them off. Now these branches represent people. Who? Who are these people? Some of the branches were broken off and you were grafted in. Well, the branches represent unbelieving Israelites. And then other branches have been grafted in. Now, you need to understand how grafting works. We don't live in an agrarian society here, and so probably most of us haven't spent much time grafting. But do you know you can take a branch from one plant and you can graft it into another plant? I think we have a picture of that for us. So you can take a a, a twig or a branch from one tree and actually graft it and make it to grow on another tree. So these wild olive branches get grafted into an existing tree. Now, who are the wild olive branches? Well, we're told those branches are the nations, the Gentiles, the people from every language, tribe, and tongue. And so we have a way for branches to get grafted into an existing tree. And so the idea here is, as Paul is writing to this church in Rome, Right into a, a, a church like ours, okay? And it's a, it's a mixed group, but it's probably a predominantly Gentile group. There were some people from Jewish background as well. So these believers are a mixture of predominantly Gentiles and some Jews. And so he's speaking to the Gentiles. And he says, I've got something for you to hear. I want you to understand something. He says, when you find yourself in this picture, don't be arrogant. When you see Gentile Christians that you were grafted in as wild branches into an existing tree, remember where you came from. Remember how you got here. And remember that there's a root system that supports you. Not the other way around. You're not supporting the roots. The roots are supporting you. Now, what is the root? Just think about this with me for a moment because he doesn't tell us explicitly here. But in verse 16, he says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. So the idea is there's a continuity between root and branches. And from the metaphors that we have here, I think the idea is that these are people that we're talking about, root and branches. And there are, as we see through Romans, uh, the whole letter, there, there are roots to the people of God. These forefathers that are mentioned in verse 29, Abraham, who's mentioned back in chapter 9, God promised that Abraham would have a huge family, Right? from all nations. Abraham is the father of us all, actually, is what he writes in chapter 4. And so there's one person who received these promises like a root, and from that root, this whole tree is now emerging. So what's the point? Well, the point is this. Gentile Christians, listen, if you're part of God's tree, be humble, rejoice, give thanks to God for this, but do not be arrogant, especially don't be arrogant towards Jewish Christians and Jewish people. How can you boast when you've been grafted into somebody else's tree? Don't become proud. But he says, stand in awe. Marvel at the grace of God. You're standing on Jewish shoulders. Shoulders of this Jewish saints that have come before you. Now, this passage actually speaks to a a, a misunderstanding that circulates today. 
Some teach that Israel has been replaced by the church, that Israel has been superseded by the church, that Israel no longer has a place in God's plan. This is a really an oversimplification, and it's really out of step with what we see in God's word here. Paul sees God's people here not as one people replaced by another people, but as one family who all have Abraham as their root and these promises that God would bring blessing to all the nations of the world through Abraham and through the covenant that he was making with him and his offspring. And so all who are branches in this one tree are attached through faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So in this sense, all Christian history is also Jewish history. So has the church replaced Israel? Well, no, that's really not not the best way to say it. It's better to say the church fulfills, not replaces, the church fulfills God's promises to have one people. Jewish and Gentile members, branches, all grafted into the same tree. That's what Paul says in the beginning of the letter. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. For who? To everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we get this wonderful picture of God's people as one tree, branches grafted in by the grace of God through faith in Christ. That's the tree. Second, we come to Israel's future. What about the future for this people? We've been saying, if you've been here for these messages in chapters 9 through 11, they're set up by the problem, the unexpected problem. Jesus comes into the world, the Messiah comes, and the people you would expect to flock to him and follow him first and most, the Jewish people, actually end up being a people who largely reject him and don't follow him. And so what happens next? Has God's word failed? Chapter 9, the answer is no. Has God rejected his people? Chapter 11, the answer is no. Well, what then? Well, what then is actually quite surprising and completely unexpected. Look at verse 25. He says, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. Do you know what the mystery is? Do you understand it? This is something that we need to understand. See, here's the idea. Think about what's happening in salvation history. There's this, there are these promises for a Messiah. And, and one day the Messiah comes, Jesus Christ, in the God incarnate, born into the world. And as he comes and as his kingdom arrives, he announces that he's the king of this kingdom and that his saving message is for all nations. And as that's happening, we see that there are promises being fulfilled, just like we've been talking about. Promises that go back to Genesis 12 or promises that go back to, the, to 2 Samuel 7, that the, out of the offspring of David would come a, a king and so on. And so there's this continuity with what's been promised in the Old Testament. But there's also surprise. There are things that are unexpected that then are revealed. There are mysteries that are made known. So there's continuity, things that are being fulfilled, and there's discontinuity, things that are unexpected, things that nobody could have foreseen. And there's a mystery right here that we want to understand. What's the mystery? Look at verse 25. Here's the mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. So now God is revealing something that nobody understood before, and that's this. 
The nation of Israel, there's this partial hardening. They're not responding to Jesus right now. That's a temporary situation. It's taking place until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And so Gentile people are coming in. The door to salvation is open. Jewish people are walking out, but Gentile people are walking in. But it's not going to end that way. It'll stay that way until all Israel is saved. So let's ask three questions here. What's going on here? First, who will be saved? What well, says all Israel will be saved? What does that mean? Well, the context here, chapters 9, 10, 11, if, you, if, you never, if you're not sure what a word means or what's happening, always look in the context. Israel is used repeatedly in chapters 9, 10, and 11 to describe ethnic Israel. So he's saying there's going to be this great salvation that's going to come to Jewish people, to ethnic Israel. In fact, he says all Israel will be saved. What does that mean, all? Does that mean every single person? In fact, in verse 32, there's a similar statement where he says, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. What does the all mean? Some will read these verses and develop an idea of universalism from them, that every single individual will be saved. But again, we want to look at the context of the letter. What does all mean? We need to understand all in the context of the letter. And the context of the letter doesn't support the idea that every individual will be saved. We've just read about branches that would be cut off. We understand that there's only a remnant of uh, believing Israelites, and it's been that way through history. We understand from chapter 2 that God's wrath is being stored up for the time when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So the all must mean something other than every single individual. And if we track the argument here, the all clearly refers to these two groups of people, Jewish people and Gentile people. So the idea is all kinds of people are going to be saved. Not every single individual will be saved. All will be saved without distinction, not all saved without exception. And so the idea here is that there will be this massive salvation that reaches into the nation of Israel. And when will this happen? Well, there's an until. Did you notice that? Until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So the door to salvation is open. Gentiles are coming in. It's reached all the way to 5200 Ox Road. People, Gentile people like me are coming in and most of this group here this morning are, are non-Jewish believers. And this is happening not just in Fairfax, it's happening all over the world. And yet, before the end, before Jesus returns, Many, many Jewish people will turn to faith in Christ. That's what we're being told here. Will it happen all at once or gradually? I don't know. But I know that it will be many. So much that they'll be able to say, all Israel's been saved now. And how will this happen? How will all Israel be saved? Sometimes people suggest that there'll be a separate track for for Jewish people to, to be saved. They can still be saved through keeping the old covenant following those promises. But that's not what the Holy Spirit teaches us in Romans. He says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is true for Jew and Gentile. And so we see this promise of a great salvation, all Israel. We see there's this hope that before Christ returns, many of his people, many of Paul's kinsmen that he weeps for and longs for to come to faith in Christ, will come to faith in Christ. One sort of side point here before we, we transition to the, to the last part of the chapter is this. All this talk of Israel may raise a question for some, and that is, hey, what about this state of Israel over in the Middle East? How do we think about that? 
Do they have a divine right to that land? Do they have sort of most favored nation status with God amongst all the nations of the earth? Well, let me just say, this is a complex question. It's not addressed by this passage. And it's a question over which sincere Christians find different answers. Don't all agree. I also want to locate this question. It's a secondary matter, not a primary matter. It's one of those disputable matters we charitably discuss, but we do not unite over matters like this and we don't divide over matters like this. So that's as far as this passage goes with that question and that's as far as I'm going to go with that question here this morning. But if you'd like to talk further about that, let me know. I'd be happy to get together and hear your thoughts and have a conversation. What we see from this passage is clear, though, that we must resist all forms of anti-Semitism. God loves his people. He loves the Jewish people. So let us resist all expressions of anti-Semitism and let us seek every way possible to bring the good news of Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, to Jewish people. If you weren't here a couple weeks ago to hear Randy Newman's message about that, I want to encourage you to, to uh, watch or listen to that from our website. The promise here is this, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And Jesus, the deliverer, has come from Zion. And before the end, he will come to Zion and bring so many of his people home. So let's watch and pray and labor to that end. Now, with that, we come to the last portion of Romans 11. This is, a, this is a massive transition. So whatever's going on in your mind right now, there's a lot of complexities in the earlier parts of chapter 11. Just take a deep breath, sort of call a, a mental timeout, because what's about to happen now is we're going we're gonna to sort of ascend to the top of these first 11 chapters, and we're going to look back and see where we've been, and it's going to lead us into praise. So if you'll indulge me, one more illustration that has to do with hiking and Yosemite, my favorite place to go. I just don't know a better way to picture this than showing you some more pictures from Yosemite. So here's one of the hikes that you can take in Yosemite. It's to a a falls called Vernal Falls. This is called the the Mist Trail. And um, it's it's not a long hike to get up to the to the top of the waterfall up there, but it's steep, and you can see there are stairs here. The last part of the hike, there are 600 of these granite stairs, and so it's, it, it's, it's tiring. And as you make your way up, there are points where you can see the falls like this, and then there are points where you actually can't even see because you're kind of winding back and forth. And if we can go to the next slide, you can see that sometimes you're just sort of working your way up, and you can't exactly even see where you're going. And there are places where people have gotten tired of sort of Uh, gotten off to the side and they're just resting up because they're trying to make their way up to the top. But when you get to the top, it's amazing. And you get up there and you're not just looking ahead. You can stop and turn around and look back. And you look back, if you can just go back one slide, just looking down, down that valley, you can say, you know what? Way down there where those little trees are, that's where we started. That's Romans 1, way back at the bottom. 
And now we've made our way up. And go ahead and go to the next slide. And you go up just a little bit higher and, and you can actually look down on the falls. And that's kind of where we've gotten to right here. It's been hard work to get to the top. We've seen some glorious views and we've seen some tough things. We've had some tough climbing. We've surveyed humanity. The verdict is this, that all both Jews and Gentiles are under sin's power. No one is right with God. No one has the power to be good enough to right their wrongs with God. We've gone to this place where we've seen that all are guilty. God has consigned all to disobedience. Is that the end of the story? It could be. God has consigned all to disobedience, and so they're all justly experiencing now the wrath of God. But know that he might have mercy on all, all nations, all who call on the name of the Lord, all who confess that Jesus is Lord will be saved. I want you to, I want you just to pause and drink this in. Yeah, we had some, we had some tough climbing in here. There were some parts of this that were hard to understand, weren't there? God hardening hearts, electing some and not others. God incomprehensible, beyond our grasp. But this we can grasp. God the creator, the holy and righteous God, the incomprehensible God, God puts sinners right with himself. If you were here last year, you may remember these signs. We marched through the human race, and we discovered that every person in the human race has a name tag. And here it is. It looks like this. Before God, we are all born like this. Born guilty before God. It doesn't matter if you're born in a religious family or not. It doesn't matter if you're born into a family that worships, worships idols or a church-going family. We all start out this way. And through faith in Jesus Christ, we can come here. This is the ground, the terrain, the hike that we've been traveling through. We have seen that by the grace of God, sinners can be justified. The unrighteous can be declared righteous. How does this happen? God does this through Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose for our justification. And now we are able to live new lives, walking not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here in this world, we groan, waiting for the new creation that we know is coming and that we are assured will be our new home. And now here, God is bringing about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And it's reached all the way to us and it's reaching to you this morning. And if you don't know this right standing with God, if you haven't come in through the door of salvation to God's house to be part of his family. Today is the day of salvation. The door is open for you here today. Come for rescue. Come for deliverance from that guilt and that shame that Vince talked about at the beginning of that meeting. Come to be washed clean. Come to be made new. Come to receive the spirit of God that you might live for his glory, a new life with God as father. Christ is your Savior, the Spirit of God dwelling in you. That invitation, that door is open for you here today. This is the ground that we've been traveling through. And we are a church of people who, by that grace of God, have experienced that justifying, saving grace. And what do we do now in light of all that we've seen? 
getting to the top, looking back over what we've seen. What do people do when they get to a place like that? What do people do at the edge of the Grand Canyon? What do people do at Niagara Falls? They, they say, oh, look at that. Can you, let me take a picture, selfies. What, people want to capture this moment. People long for grandeur and transcendence. And when we get it, when we see it, we have to tell somebody else about it. What do we do here this morning? We need to tell each other. And we need to tell God how great he is. This is what Paul does. You know, when he gets to the top, do you know what he does? He doesn't give sort of a systematic overview of everything that's just happened, sort of summarize all the theology. You know what he does? He worships. He writes a hymn. Listen to what he does. Listen. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be glory forever. Amen. You see what he's doing. Can you see? Theology leads to doxology. Doctrine leads to worship. Bible study leads to praise. The outcome of theology isn't to make us smarter or more impressive. It's to lead us into worshipful lives to our great God, to the obedience of faith that results in praise to his great name. Oh, church, behold your God. Behold the depth of his riches. You ever worry about running out of money? You ever worry about what's going to happen financially? God has never worried about that. Oh, the depth of the riches of God. You've received his riches, the riches of his kindness that lead to repentance, the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, the riches of his salvation to all who call on him. Behold, this is your God. Who can grasp all his thoughts? Who can ever say, this is all there is to say about God. There's no more. No one can say that. Who's ever given him advice? Who's ever offered him counsel? When has he ever stopped and scratched his head and said, hey, can you help me out with this one? It's never happened. It's not happening today. And it will never happen. There's no one like our Who can do him a favor so that then he's got to repay that? You ever have that experience? You do something for someone and then expect them to do something back for you or someone does something for you and then they expect something in return? It doesn't work that way with God. He is completely self-sufficient and independent. He doesn't need anything from anyone and yet he loves us. And he loves us make himself known 
so that the people can come and know him. From him and through him and to him are all things. From him, he's the creator. He's the first cause, the first mover. He's the initiator. There was nothing and there was something. How did that happen? God did it. In the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth from him and through him. He's the sustainer. He didn't just create it and go away. He sustains the universe by the word of his power. That breath you just took, how'd you do it? God did that in you. If he took his spirit away from you, if he removed his providential work in the world, your breath would stop right now. All life would cease on the earth right now. The universe would collapse immediately. Through him, the universe continues. The earth spinning perfectly so that we move season to season, day to day. And to him, to him are all things. He's not only the beginning of all things, he's the end of all things. He's not only the source of all things, he's the goal of all things. You want purpose for your life? You want to know why you're here? He's the goal. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the reason we're here. To know him. To be conformed to the image of his son. To make him known. To live for the praise of his glory. What a great God. What a great God. When you see a, when you see a great sight, you want to tell somebody else. You meet a great person, you want to tell somebody else about it. How about we take some time right now and let's tell one another through our songs and let's tell God how great he is. Would you stand with me and would the band come on back up? I'm going to start with this song, Holy, Holy, Holy. Just listen to the words of the first verse. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. This God that we sing to, He is three times holy and there's no one like him. He's incomprehensible. And yet we can know him. He's merciful and he's mighty. He's God triune. He's the blessed Trinity. Let's lift our voices and let's bring him praise. Commensurate with the greatness of his name and the salvation that we've received.